Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Youth Movement Podcast after a long hiatus. Uh, I went on vacation. Jeff uh, was available to podcast, but it's kind of difficult to do that when you don't have your usual setup. So we're back with you now, um, a couple weeks removed from the last time we recorded. And uh, a lot has happened since then. Last time we were talking, we were talking about, oh, there's going to be game two of the Predators series tonight. Or game one, I think. It was right before game one. Uh, And since then, the Predators have lost that series with the Carolina Hurricanes in six games. Now we're into the uh, offseason for the team. The rest of the league is still playing in the playoffs. Uh, It's the conference finals as we speak on Friday, June 18th. Um, And yeah, there's, there's plenty to talk about going on around the league. But let's kick things off just talking about uh, this playoff series really quickly. So uh, there, there were a couple of really notable events that happened within here. We'll just do the quick hits, obviously. The Predators drop down in the series. They come back and they win uh, both games at home in spectacular fashion uh, in double overtime, both of them, and then lose game five in really tough fashion. Uh, they played well in that game. And game six, I was at that game. Jeff was at that game too. Uh, Predators had a two-goal lead going into the third period, I believe, and then ended up blowing it also in spectacular fashion and uh, just kind of turtled the whole way, hung UCSRS out to dry. Canes take the series uh, in Bridgestone, which was pretty tough to see. And just just looking at that, let's let's talk for a second about, first off, I guess the high moments of the series, which were Luke Cunning and Matt Duchesne's overtime winners. Uh, how'd you feel when those happened? Are those going to be lasting memories for you? Are those the best things about this season for you? Um, and then also, did you think in the moment, I feel like this is the more important question, did it give you any hope of them winning the series? So I was at both of those games too, along with game six and it was like ridiculously incredible. It was awesome to be there. Um, if you guys follow my Twitter and know me, I love Matthew Shane. I think he gets uh short end of the stick sometimes. So to see him, you know, just take that feed from Roman Yossi, just that sweet lob pass and then just deposit it right at the top of the net over Nadelkovic. It was just so satisfying for me especially when he had been playing well all game and it kind of, he hadn't really gotten rewarded for it yet. And then the same thing happened with Luke Cunnan. I mean, he was, he looked excellent in game four and you know, the, the, they just kept reaping the rewards of it. He was pretty much everywhere. And I mean, his first goal was great too in that game. Yeah. The atmosphere when both of those goals were scored was definitely something that I remember, especially after this long and, crazy COVID year, you know, it was just so great to be back in a building full of, you know, 14 some odd fans, 14,000 some odd fans. I don't, it was, it was way too many. And, you know, it was just compared to, I mean, having been to games earlier in the year compared to the playoffs, just way more, it was so awesome. And as far as winning the series goes, I mean, I actually did think that they had a chance to win the series after those two go after those two goals. It just felt like all of the momentum was really 
just in their favor. I, I thought Game 5 was their game to lose after those two uh, overtime winners. I mean, it was just un- unbelievable. It was really something, like you said, that I'll be watching over and over again for the rest of my life, considering what went on this year, how many fans were back, how loud it was with the restrictions on fans still. It was just incredible. Yeah, I only got to experience a loss in the playoffs this year, which was that game six. But I watched on TV both of those other games and did recaps for them for on the four check. Uh, and, I mean, I'll, I'll say I didn't think that – basically I needed to see them win game five on the road for them to win the series. That was what I needed to see from them. If they, if they had won that game, which I thought they very well could have won that game, they outplayed the Hurricanes for chunks of it. Um, they took them to OT. But they, they – uh, or did they take them to OT in that game or am I thinking of game six? Yeah, they were f- – all, all four games since game three were... They were all OT games. You're right. Yeah, so I I really thought, though, in that game five, I was like, if they win this game, which I, I for much of the game, thought they were going to end up winning, uh, then they're going to take the series because they're coming back home to Bridgestone. They play their best weather in Bridgestone. My biggest concern after they lost game five was I felt like they used up most of the gas that they had in the tank in just taking those games overtime and then winning them or in the case of game three or not game three game five uh just really pushing the hurricanes through overtime and then eventually losing in overtime so when i went into that game six i was like there's a good chance that they could win this game and take it to seven and then they still lose the series because they can't win in carolina or there's a very good chance that they end up losing at home because they've just completely spent themselves trying to get to this point the Hurricanes are clearly a better team. Um, so I don't know that I had an incredible amount of optimism heading into game six, but I was really pleased with the way that they played in this series. Um, I thought they got much better as it went along. And then obviously the collapse in the final game, pretty tough to watch. They should have won game six, but you win some, you lose some. This team had no real business even being in the playoffs uh, and they got dragged here by a goalie. So Everything at this point was pretty much just icing on the cake. Uh, Let's talk about why this happened, though. Um, There was a lot that went wrong in this series, and we can't spend 40 minutes talking about that. That would be a little bit ridiculous. I don't want to be that negative. Um, So let's just pick two things each that went wrong in the series that we can talk about here. All right. I chose uh, letting – well, for the first one, I chose – letting Carolina get through the uh, the neutral zone way too easily. Um, I mean, it was pretty apparent in the games that they lost that they weren't clogging the neutral zone at all. I mean, a lot the I mean the Marty Natchez momentum swinging wraparound goal was because the defense just watched him walk through the neutral zone and then saw him just kind of skate behind the net just casually, and that was one thing I actually talked about in the first episode of this podcast was not letting guys like Marty Natchez go through the neutral zone unfazed. And lo and behold, they did. And it cost them a lot. And it was something that I noticed too. It was like, they, they allowed the easy passes as well. It wasn't just letting people skate through the neutral zone, but it was letting people 
pass the puck up through the neutral zone without really any kind of force against it. In the games that they did win, it they looked really good protecting that neutral zone for some of the time. Obviously the Canes being as good a team as they are, they're gonna they're gonna get their chances, but for the most part they managed to stifle that those long stretch passes. Um, and then for my second thing, their faceoffs were absolutely awful, um, especially in the defensive zone. Uh, there was one guy, Mikhail Granlund, who literally could not win a faceoff to save his life. Uh, the team, out of all first round teams, with eight was eighth worst in uh, faceoff plus minus, um, and they were eleventh out of sixteen teams in faceoff percentage at forty eight point three. Uh, and one thing I noticed was the bottom five teams, including the Preds, were all eliminated from the playoffs. So, I mean, correlation doesn't always equal causation, but faceoffs are definitely important. And it was something that I noticed throughout the series was these big defensive draws after they iced the puck, just because they were too overwhelmed by the Canes' forecheck, they lost. And, I mean, that was literally I, – I, I remember specifically calling Dougie Hamilton's goal – to tie the game in game six, I said, the Preds are going to ice the puck here and then they're going to lose a defensive face off. And then they're going to, the Canes are going to score and it happened. And it was so predictable because it had been happening the entire series. And my, I mean, naturally my, everyone I was sitting with got angry at me, but yeah, I mean, it was just at that point, it was so predictable and it was something that if, you really watched they were clearly struggling with and it was killing them because they couldn't gain any momentum through that yeah those are good picks um the face-off thing in particular i normally am a person where i'm like face-offs for the most part aren't that important um but the rate at which they were losing key ones in the defensive zone really crushed them um and led to the whole basically, hey, let's just chuck the puck down the ice thing. Um, and Carolina would get sustained offensive zone time out of that. So that was pretty tough to watch. Uh, mine kind of are similar to yours a little bit. Um, I guess in some ways, at least the first one is. But my, my biggest problem watching the series was that you could just see the massive speed difference between these two teams and how it was playing out. Um, and negatively impacting the Predators on a nightly basis. The the thing that really frustrated me, even more than the defensive breakdowns, because we knew Harper and Goodbranson are, you know, they have feet like concrete. They're not going to be able to keep up with these guys. That was just a John Hines decision. Um, and I'm not going to blame the team for, you know, him icing two players who can't skate. But uh, the the more frustrating thing was watching zone entries and watching the team attempt to do exits and entries because you'd watch and I mean like baby something really like baby level that they teach you obviously when you're playing is the the easiest entry option is you go wide with speed along the way and you just go wide with speed the defender is trying to push you wide um, and take the angle there and force you out so that you don't have a you know easy shot or path to the net and the Predators just lacked the speed to challenge the Hurricanes that way. So there goes your easiest option to enter the zone. And this is a team that's not exactly highly skilled uh, for the most part. So they didn't have many other options besides just go wide with speed. 
So it, it really just devolved into dump the puck in, chip and charge, hope that you win a, a race to the puck or a puck battle along the boards. And the, that, that might have worked against a team that wasn't quite as good at dealing with a forecheck, but the Hurricanes were excellent at it, um, particularly because they themselves are a great forechecking team. So they, the Predators, I feel like what ended up killing them the most in this series, they were opportunistic when they would get successful chances, usually off the rush. Um, but they, they just failed to create that many opportunities. Uh, many opportunities in the series because they would they would just trip over themselves going through the neutral zone or get trapped in their own end and be unable to have a controlled breakout and that's something that this team needs to fix it can't just be Roman Yossi and Matt Duchesne and nobody else on the entire team that's capable of breaking it out um, and the Hurricanes killed them on that there are a lot of shifts that they just chuck the puck right over their own uh their own uh, blue line, and then the Hurricanes would take it straight back in. Uh, and that that's the kind of stuff that you can't be doing in a playoff series, particularly if you're going against a more talented team than you. The other thing was because of the lack of transition ability, the team outside of maybe the top line, and even they struggled a little bit at this, just had no sustained offensive possessions. There would be a couple in a game that you'd see where a line would – catch the Hurricanes out there and they'd keep them pinned in the zone for a little bit. But Nashville has always been a team that's mostly profited off of attacking off the rush because in a controlled cycle, it's it's much more about passing vision and skill and the ability to attack the slot in order to successfully score. And if you're just bombing away from the point or taping, taking sharp angle shots, um, it's much more likely that it's just going to bounce out of the zone or – you get one attempt and then you're done. So this is a team-wide problem that's been there for a little bit, but it was particularly bad in the playoffs. And Nedeljkovic was at his worst when he was actually being challenged on the cycle. He did it uh, best when he was going up against rush attempts. So it felt like there was no adjustment occurring there or that the Predators were incapable of adjusting to that. Um, they were very direct in the way that they were trying to attack him. They didn't change it up very much. Uh, so those were the frustrating things that I saw. Uh, getting off of the negative things, though, let's talk about what went right here. You can go ahead. Yeah, so as I said before, I love Matthew Shane. Um, and to see him really flourish with Forsberg and Johansson was just brought a tear to my eye. It was it was incredible. I, I loved it. He, he played really, really well. Uh, he keeping him with Johansson and Forsberg was an excellent decision by John Hines. And honestly, it surprised me that they kept him together because as we all, as we all know with John Hines, he, uh, he's not one known to keep a lot of his lines together. So it was very, very exciting for me as a, fan of Matthew Shane and fan of what he's done so far, even though the score sheet is not a huge fan of him. Um, but yeah, that line, they, they, all three of them are, were top three in uh, expected goals for percentage. Uh, Johansson led with 60.78%. And then it was Forsberg at 57.44 and then Duchesne at 55.77. So all three of them were, fairly above the average in terms of creating 
shot high danger chances and not allowing very many. Um, it was just, they put on an absolute clinic when they were on the ice most of the time. And even when they weren't scoring, it was clear that they were dominating puck possession. I mean, they were just incredible. And then how could I talk about the playoffs or even just this season without mentioning UC Soros? Um, he was, he, he did literally everything that he possibly could. Um, it was hard because he didn't get a lot of help. Um, but, and he was, I mean, and the team they were playing was, they were sorely outmatched, but I mean, he did, he, he played really incredible. Uh, he set franchise records. I mean, the guy was just insane. He was, he, he did literally everything that he needed to do outside of maybe a couple weird goals like that. Jordan, I, I can't remember which game it was a uh, Jordan stalls, weird one that kind of went over his shoulder um, where he could have been on the post, I guess. But that was really the only one where I was a little concerned with what he was doing. Uh, other than that, I mean, he was everywhere. Like he was during the regular season, uh, you know, it just at this point you feel really bad for him because the team couldn't, give him support for literally a, an extended period of time outside of maybe like two minutes uh, d- during the beginning of periods. Like it was just, it was hard to watch because he just tried to get the team in, in the games and it just it clearly didn't work. Yeah. Saros, by the way, the fun stat is he is the only goalie besides Curtis Joseph back in, I want to say 1993 was the only other time this happened. Um, It might have been a different year than that. But him and Curtis Joseph are the only goalies to have back-to-back games with 50 saves or more in the postseason. Um, That's pretty good company to be in, Curtis Joseph, borderline Hall of Famer. So uh, looking at my pair that I picked here, I would have gone with Saros, obviously, but uh, trying to keep things a little bit more varied here in the interest of entertainment. Uh, I really liked what the defense did in this series outside of the bottom pair. And I didn't love how everybody looked in game one. Um, it looked like the D took a couple of games to get their legs under them, but I, I really liked what I saw out of Ekholm. I liked what I saw of Ellis in particular, who led the team in points in the postseason and just was a force after like game one, pretty much. Uh, which was pretty funny because everybody after game one was saying Ryan Ellis is too small to play playoff hockey and he's actually bad. Uh, and then the guy who I was maybe the most impressed with uh, was Alexander Carrier. I really loved what I saw from him. He's proven me very wrong. Um, and Eric too of on the four check. Who's our big prospects guy. I I've watched a decent amount of Carrier over the past like year and a half or so in Milwaukee. Um, and I always saw a guy where he just looked like another quadruple A player, uh, kind of in the realm of, I don't, I don't want to say, um, nah, that's not fair to him, but he, he, he always looked like a guy where he would be a very good AHL player, but I didn't know if that would really translate to anything besides being a bottom pair, pretty decent bottom pairing defenseman in the NHL, which isn't a bad thing. Um, you need those guys, but he looked like a legitimate top four defenseman in this series. He had one bad game, um, 
And then outside of that, he was probably the second best defenseman on the team for the postseason. Uh, played big minutes, played well in them, made good decisions, just was calm with the puck on his stick. I really liked uh, what I saw from him. I don't know that it gives me the confidence to say, oh, he's going to be an integral part of the blue line going forward. We've seen uh, multiple times that small sample sizes with young players can be completely misleading, uh, much like that Dante Fabro outing against the Stars in the postseason where he made his debut. But I, I, I liked what I saw from the defense. I thought they did a good job. My, my issues with the play in front of Yusei Saros mostly came from, I didn't think the forwards did a great job of containing, and then the bottom pairing was just abysmal. Um, that, that was the bigger problem for me. I thought positionally, defense did a good job. There wasn't much better that they could have done. Um, the other thing that I really appreciated was, we talked about prior to the series going on, uh, that if Nashville wanted to win, they were going to need to muck up the pace of play. They were going to need to slow things down, uh, irritate Carolina, make it physical. They did do that for a little bit, but I think they they adapted a little bit to where they weren't just going out of their way to do it. They just kind of made sure that they were making calm decisions and weren't rushing uh, the development of a play rather than just, you know, yeeting it into the offensive zone, which they kind of did a lot of in the first two games. Uh I, I appreciated that they adjusted like that. And then maybe most importantly, we talked about how Carolina had a massive advantage on special teams coming into this series. And the Predators held their power play in check despite the Hurricanes getting a lot of opportunities. Um, they were mostly held off the board. I think they only had one or two power play goals in the whole series. Um, so that's that's a pretty big deal. Uh, I I was not expecting the Predators to round into form like that and uh, do a good job of containing. But yeah, looking at this, uh, the Hurricanes had six total power play goals in their postseason run. Um, and they got a lot of opportunities against the Predators. I think they maybe had two or three. Uh, so I was very pleased with what I saw out of the penalty kill. And if there's anything that you can give credit to John Hines on for this season, I would say it's the revamping of the penalty kill uh, right around when Matias Ekholm got back. They were great for the back half of the year in front of Saros, despite Saros struggling on the penalty kill relative to his standard numbers. So I thought they did that right, and that's reason for encouragement going into next season. Speaking of that, uh, did this series outcome or how the Predators played within it uh, really change your opinion of them at all, both this current team that we have and then the look for them going forward? I know coming into this series, both of us were very vehemently, this team needs to rebuild. They're putting it off, um, and it was a mistake to put it off. Do you feel any differently now? I do not. I, I just, I, I can't. I, I can't. I, I still think a, a rebuild should happen as soon, I mean, as soon as possible. Uh, the team is, I, I mean, I, I've written about it, but the team is missing a lot of things. And, I mean, anybody that's half paying attention can tell that they don't have an elite scorer and Philip Forsberg. I don't know where he's been. He's He was there at a point this year, but then he got hurt. So, uh, I don't know. Is it time to start worrying about him? Uh, it's a good question to be asking right now. Um, and, obviously, if our guys can't score, then there's a problem with coaching uh, and 
I also wrote about this, that, that the coaching since the Predators have been an organization, like since their inaugural, inaugural year, it was, it's been all defensive coaches. I mean, you think of Barry Trotz and the Islanders with what he's doing now. I mean, he's a primarily defensive coach. And then you have Peter LaViolette, and he's a primarily defensive coach. Uh, and then you have John Hines, who also has a system that does stifle the offense and promotes good defensive play. It's just been kind of a constant thing where they don't have a coach that really forces strong offensive play. And that might be to the fault of the general manager uh, because the way he's built this team is around defense and goaltending. And as of right now, it doesn't look like that's, I mean, especially with the state of the NHL today, that does not look to be a recipe for success. Obviously, you want to have strong defense and goaltending. Who doesn't? But at the same time, emphasizing it a little too much can be detrimental to your results. Uh, I mean, the highest scorer for the team this year was Roman Yossi with 33 points. And he's not even a forward. And it's been like that for years now. I mean, it's just been super constant. And, and, you know, there's just, there's got to be some changes. And, I mean, we saw changes even just smaller ones happen this year. I mean, they injected youth into the lineup and it was like a revelation. I mean, they came in and they were hungry. It felt like the guys that were on the roster were just getting complacent. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not in the locker room. I don't play on the team, so I can't tell. But seeing as their performances were not good until the hungry guys came up, you can kind of infer that that is the mindset or was the mindset at least. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that just moving the old guys out uh, and bringing in younger guys, uh, even if it's not a player like Philip Tomasino yet, uh, I, I just think that would be really beneficial to the future of the Predators because you get guys that are coming in that are gaining more experience, but you also have that set track that you're down. I mean, right now it just feels like the Predators are kind of hovering in the middle and they don't really know which direction they're going. It just feels like we're going to try and make the playoffs. And if we don't, then it's whatever. But if we do, then it's also whatever, you know, it's just been kind of a middle of the road type deal. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not, I think this off season is really crucial uh, to not bring in guys like Brad Richardson on useless contracts. It just kind of feels like it just, a perpetual state of signing UFAs to take up roster spots. And I don't think that's how it should work. Okay. So Eamon rant alert here. Uh, I'm going to go on a little bit of a spiel because this is something that I have a lot of feelings about and thoughts on my, my biggest problem with the outcome of this series is that people are looking at it and going, well, the Predators were competitive with one of the best teams in hockey, so maybe they're better than we thought they were. Maybe John Hines is a better coach than we thought he was because he got this team here and he had them playing well enough to take it to six. Um, And I feel like all of that is just... I I don't want to say a mirage per se, but it's not representative of what this season actually was. If you go in and you look, the Predators were 
a bottom tier team by basically any metric you could define them by, whether that be just goals for and goals against. Uh, if you're just looking at pure goal scoring as a determinant of whether or not a team is good, the Predators were not that great by that. Um, if you're looking at advanced metrics, they were a middle of the pack or worse team for the most part, particularly offensively. They were an okay defensive team. Uh, the one area that they really were great in was goaltending, and that was only over the back half of the season where their record drastically improved. If you look at the numbers in those games, the team didn't really play all that much better. Now, they had more opportunistic scoring and finishing, and you could say, well, the talent on this roster is good enough where they were bound for some regression to the mean to start finishing. But I don't think you can fully credit John Hines with the team's turnaround outside of uh, the penalty kill. That is a valid thing to credit him for. They made system changes. The penalty kill was much more aggressive. They changed the personnel up, and that fixed the problem. I think that's worthy of praise for him as a head coach. But the constant lineup shifts, the reluctance to play the young players until absolutely forced to by a litany of injuries, um, and then just the lack of overall production and adaptation to the struggles of the season, all of these were things that the Predators could have adjusted to or at the bare minimum made some sign that they were recognizing the problems that were underlying what was going on and instead they just decided to ignore it and then got lucky because a goalie got hot. Uh, I don't think you can look at this season and say this changes anything about the future outlook for the franchise. They clearly got outplayed in this series. They were held in it by a goalie doing his damnedest to keep them in it. And even that wasn't enough. Um, there, there was just a clear talent deficit. And the Hurricanes got smacked in the next round by the Lightning. So what does that tell us about Nashville? There are a couple of things. Um, the main thing for me, I don't want to be too critical of David Poyle's inability to develop forwards. Because as Eric has rightly pointed out a couple of times, Nashville just has not had top-tier draft capital uh, for a lot of their time as a franchise. Now they should be better and more aggressive about taking those skilled players. Um, and I feel like they've started to do that more recently, especially with the picks of Ellie Tolvanen. Uh, I like the Tomasina selection a lot, but I, the, the biggest issue I have with them is the lack of recognition of what a contention window is. Um, if you're, if you're looking at the way that all of these players are going to function at their peak, and when they're going to be basically rounding into form as key contributors on the team, none of it lines up. Luke Cunning is going into, this was his age 22 season. He's going to be 23 next year, um, if I'm remembering that correctly. And he's, he's one of the younger pieces on this team. And then you look at the pieces that the team are supposedly built around, and you have Ellis at home, Yossi, and all of those dudes are pushing 30. This is not a team where you're going to be able to realign the younger players and get them to their peaks in time for uh, those players to still be great top-tier NHL players. They're going to fall off by the point that Tomasino is an impact player in the NHL, most likely. And Ellie Tolvanen has figured everything out and is scoring at a top-line pace. There is a scenario where they could all line up and, uh, you know, Ellis at like 32 is still a great player. 33 is still a great player. Ekholm is still a very good player. 
but in all likelihood, the better chance is that these guys decline in effectiveness, and then you have to just hope that the youth develops properly underneath them to prop them up. Nashville doesn't seem to recognize this. They're content with standing pat and just going, yeah, well, we're going to hope for the scenario where it all pans out and all of these young players can currently develop at the right rate at the same time so that basically there is good support behind these players when they start to fall off. I'm not in favor of trading Roman Yossi because I think even if he does decline pretty steeply, he'll still be an effective NHL player. Um, but I would take a look at moving Ryan Ellis and I would take a look at moving Matias Ekholm because I don't think by the time the rest of this team is ready to be a legitimate Stanley Cup contender again, that those guys are still going to be good and be able to be rocks uh, for that team. So in short, my opinion about this team has not changed. My opinion about what they need to do has not changed. Uh, it would be in their best interest to take a long, hard look and say, five years down the road, who is still going to be around? What are they going to be contributing to the team? Who do we need to get rid of in order to make sure that we have the cap space and the assets free to add players to build around who we actually want to build the team around for that window? Um, rather than just perpetually slamming the head against the wall and going, yeah, maybe the Predators will be able to pull a run out of their ass at some point. Moving on from that, uh, just wonderful conversation about I guess the futility of the way the franchise is operating right now do you have any final thoughts before we go to our next topic here I honestly I just I just want to see them pick a lane that's my biggest thing uh I mentioned it at the end of my little rant but uh right now it just feels like they're just kind of waiting for something big to happen or some player to just pop up out of nowhere for the for them to grab at the draft or I honestly don't know what they're waiting for but it's just been kind of a thing with David Poyle that he just needs to make the playoffs all the time and that there can't be a rebuild. And it's like, it it just, it's not the right. I mean, obviously a rebuild doesn't solve everything and it's not like some cure. It's, it's not a cure to the problems, but it's, it's a step in at least a direction. And that's kind of where I think the Preds need to figure it out is which direction are we trying to go in? And right now, with the ages of the core guys that you mentioned outside of maybe Philip Forsberg, they're not a Stanley cup contender and it doesn't look like they're going to be able to go back down that road like they were a couple years ago. So yeah, for me, it's just picking a lane and figuring out what to do with it from there. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the ages of the players who are potentially going to be impact players, like, Tomasino, I don't think it's right for us to assume. I think he's a very good player right now, and he could have been in the NHL this year, but I don't think it's fair for us to assume that he could come in his rookie year and be a 60- or 70-point player. That seems a little bit absurd uh, to put those kinds of expectations on him. Ellie Tolvanen, very good player. It's probably going to be another couple years before he rounds all the way into form and is possibly a top-line guy, and we don't even know if he'll ever become that. Askarov, multiple years away. And then when he hits the NHL, he'll probably have a little bit of developing to do as well. Uh, All of these guys, by the time that they get to the point where they'll be able to provide the boost that this team needs to take them back to Stanley Cup contending status, the rest of the core pieces aren't going to be able to be core pieces anymore. 
So that's kind of the question I had was like, why are you hanging on to them? What is the point? Uh, I understood the mentality of we have to make the playoffs back when the Predators were a fledgling franchise that didn't have much of a fan base. And they were just trying to establish a tradition of at least minor success. And you can come and watch this team and they will be competitive and you'll at least get to see them in the playoffs every year. But now that they're more established, they have established fans. Um, they're not going to be, I guess, playing in an empty arena, even if the team is bad because people are engaged. This is, I don't want to make a blanket statement because football will always reign supreme in Tennessee, but I would say that the Predators have the more dedicated, diehard fan base between them and the Titans. This is the pro team. And they don't need to worry quite as much anymore about how are we getting fans into the building? How are we getting to sell tickets? You can afford now to say, we're going to suck for three years. We're going to go take a crack at getting uh, one of Lambert, Savoie, or Wright, or maybe Connor Bedard, uh, or Mat- Matvey Mishkov, uh, any of those guys who could be potential franchise-changing talents. And then go do that rather than just saying, well, if we do that, then maybe the fans will lose interest in the team. It's just, it's exactly what the Rangers had to do basically because they were in the same position of we're in a market where success is expected. It's a little bit different, obviously, but they put out the letter. They said, we're going to suck. We're going to suck for a couple years. And then we're going to build a true Stanley Cup contender because we've been sitting in limbo for too long. And that's the position the Predators are in. They just need to bite the bullet and make a decision whether or not they're going to, I think, foolishly go all the way in and do something like sign Gabriel Landeskog or something along those lines, which I don't think puts them in cup contention status, but maybe they'd be like second in the Central Division uh, versus going, we're going to sell at the draft. We're going to lose some pieces in the expansion draft and sell off a couple of assets to make that happen so that we have more cap space opened up. We're going to stink for a couple of years and then we're going to ramp it back up again and go back to the playoffs and have a team that's got a legitimate shot at winning a Stanley cup. Uh, with that, we'll conclude this segment talking about the predators postseason Cause I think, well, I made some wonderful memories in it. I prefer not to think about them losing in six games, uh, Particularly game five and game six were very tough. Uh, let's go on to some off-season talk. Looking at moves that this team could make, I basically set it up so that we're both going to offer up a single move that we want the Predators to make, and then we're going to go ahead and debate which of them would be better for the team in the long term. I'll let you start things off. All right, so for me, I... I... I don't think the Preds should really do much. Um, I think as much as I would love some great content for my writing, I would, for in terms of like the direction for this franchise, I don't think pursuing a lot of people would be the best option. Um, but uh, I, it's kind of a two-parter. Uh, I, the minor thing that I looked at, uh, I would say bring back Mikhail Granlund. Um, I like him a lot. He's, despite his not so great performance in the dot during the faceoffs um, in the playoffs. He, he, uh, he was, he, I mean, he scored points and he did prove to be kind of that steady presence on that second line. Um, so I'd love to see them, him bring him back. And uh, my more 
major part was uh, signing Philip Forsberg to an extension uh, as soon as possible. Um, I mean, we all know what Philip Forsberg's capable of. We've all seen his skill. I mean, he's done a lacrosse move. He's he's he, I mean, he deked Sam Girard out of his socks in the 2018 playoffs. Uh, I mean, the guy is just so so talented, and he he's the main attraction outside of Roman Yossi. He is the main attraction for the Nashville Predators. And the sooner that you can get him locked up to a deal before he hits his prime, I think the better. I mean, he's just, he's an unreal player and any team is going to want to bid for him. Uh, I mean, knowing that his production has been kind of low in Nashville could mean lower contract than what he's probably worth. So, you know, I mean, he's just, I think the sooner that you can keep other teams away, uh, the better, and I think that should be a priority for them. Yeah, uh, that's that's a totally fair perspective. Um, you kind of you kind of uh, gave gave two answers there, cheater. But uh, it's it's fair it's fair to say basically let everybody walk outside of this one guy, and then use the money to extend Forsberg. Uh, uh, the question for me is whether Forsberg would want to stay if the team committed to a rebuild, but I think he's made it super clear he wants to stay in Nashville, so maybe he'd be willing to stick around, uh, especially if the team paid him pretty handsomely to be kind of like with the Blackhawks, you look back and you see uh, Havlat was the guy who kind of bridged the gap between the rebuild and when they started to contend, and then he left right before they won the Stanley Cup. Uh, but he was that guy who helped them kind of make the jump uh, when those young players started coming up. He was an experienced vet, but he was a very good player at that point still. Uh, so that's that's an interesting perspective. Uh, we can debate these two in a second here. My pick was I feel like the Predators should trade one or both of their uh, kind of aging not totally committed to defensemen. Obviously, they're pretty well committed to Ryan Ellis, so making him uh, the guy who gets moved makes a little bit less sense. He's a cost-controlled player. He's great when he's healthy. Um, Ekholm, in need of an extension coming up. He's going to be pushing 30. Uh, Very good player, but I don't think completely irreplaceable per se. And the, the big thing for me is does keeping Matthias Ekholm versus letting him go change the Predators into a contender or take them all the way down to tank status? I feel like it takes them more in one direction than it does the other. I don't think that extending Ekholm makes them more of a contender. I feel like it just means that they're further away from being able to execute a rebuild properly. Um, so if I'm them, I'm trading Ekholm at the draft to a team that's willing to extend him for draft picks, prospects, young players. Uh, That's the move there. You're wanting to accelerate this rebuild. So look at, again, you have to evaluate who on the roster and in the pipeline are the people that we want to build the next great Predators team around. If it's me, I'm probably saying Tomasino, Tolvanen, Askarov. That's the trio. And then Luke Cunning can be an older player on that team. Maybe Forsberg can be the big veteran guy. But those are the dudes that you're going to be building the team around. So align it that way. Look at either prospects that you think could join the team at that point, be on entry-level contracts and be impact players, or 
you look at current NHL players who are young, who you think could be kind of the not totally veteran, but like in the age, they'd be 26 years old, 27 years old, uh, and still productive players on modest salaries by the time those prospects hit the NHL. Those are the types of moves that you should be making right now um, to bolster this team's future. I, I would definitely say also that if you're going to be trading for draft picks rather than prospects, make sure that you're targeting next year's draft. Uh, this year, I mean, it'd be easier to acquire draft picks. So if the Predators are particularly confident in the evaluation job that they've done with the prospects in the 2021 draft, go for it, man. Uh, you'd probably be able to get more picks for this year than you would be next year. But next year's draft is going to be the right Bedard, or not Bedard, right Lambert and uh, Savoie draft. It's much deeper. They're going to be better players available at lower picks. Um, this is one of the weakest draft class that, classes that we've seen in recent years, or at least it looks that way on paper. Uh, so if I'm them, that's the move I'm making. Don't commit more salary to another defenseman who's not going to be around when the team is contending, or at the very least will not be a super useful piece at that point in all likelihood. So let's let's have some thoughts on that, Jeff. Out of those two, which do you feel like is the more optimal move for the Predators and why? Honestly, um, I mean, I, I'm a little bit biased, but... Um, I don't entirely disagree with what you're saying. Uh, I, I think – I just feel like trading Ekholm uh, at this point, I don't know. I think just because I don't know what his next contract could look like, um, I do 100% agree that we need to get more uh, you know, prospects, draft picks, whatever you can get out of the package. And if Matias Ekholm and Ryan Ellis are the way to do that, then, you know – so be it, but I'm not sure if I would trade them as soon as the draft. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kind of in that middle road because I don't know. Um, I don't want them to pursue anybody like big, um, which we'll talk about later. Um, but you know, I, I just, I don't know. I feel like at this point does giving up, Ekholm and Ellis, or even just one of those two, send a different message than what David Poyle or whoever's running the show might want to be sent, you know? Um, yeah, I, and I, I mean, I thought, I, I'd say I'd probably send Ellis first instead of Ekholm, just going to throw that out there. That's fair, I, yeah. I, I think Ryan Ellis is a good defenseman, and I think he can be useful but he, over the last three seasons, he has had some trouble with decision-making. Um, he's small. People have noticed that. I mean, I'm not going to harp on guys for being small. It's stupid. And, I mean, Braden Point's showing everyone right now why, <laughs> I mean, small players can thrive. Um, but, he, I mean, he has been known to be out-muscled on plays. I mean, that the, the play with Jamie Benn where he got pushed probably 30 feet, not that much, but a lot of, a, of – very far distance from the puck just because of a body check. And then they, I mean, the stars scored. It was the, in the playoffs, uh, it was just, I mean, that's what people are harping on him for that. And I don't really blame him. Um, I think he's an ex, I think he's a very good defenseman that could prove to be very worthy of a top pairing spot. 
on another good team. But I think for the Preds right now, if you're going to go down the road, road of uh, trading one of the top three defensemen, I think it's got to be Ellis. Just because I, I view Ekholm more of a, a leader as, as than Ellis, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, so when I was when I was coming up with my uh, move, I basically I had trouble deciding between Ekholm and Ellis. The only reason I decided on Ekholm was because I felt like keeping salary free um, with him would probably be smarter. Uh, you don't want to commit to another contract, and then just looking. I'd have to look this up again, but uh, Ekholm, Ekholm's projected to get basically a shade under $7 million over five years by Evolving Hockey's contract projections, um, which is, I mean, that seems about right. I feel like he could maybe get a little bit more or a little bit less out of that. Uh, but then looking at Ryan Ellis's contract, you, you make a good point here because he doesn't have a no-movement clause. Um, now, you could question basically talking about sending the wrong message. If you trade Ellis, Ellis took a huge discount to stay with the Predators. He could have gotten paid a lot more somewhere else. Um, and you could make the argument that if you, if you trade Ellis, well, that sends the wrong message because you just shipped out a guy who took a hometown discount to stay with the team. Um, and this team can't be trusted to keep those guys around, blah, blah, blah. But um, I, w- I will say that Ellis this season in particular uh, gave me much more reason for concern for his long-term uh, impact and ability than Ekholm did. I thought Ekholm, after having a pretty rough beginning to the year, bounced back super well. He played like a Norris Trophy contender for a little bit, um, played like a number one defenseman. So I... I could see I could see why you would pick Ellis over him. I would personally say uh, I would slightly prefer my move because I feel like it would accelerate the rebuild more. You talked about this team needs to pick a lane, um, and I feel like that would be them picking a lane. If you trade one of those two players, that basically signals we're going into a rebuild, we're committing to it, uh, this is what we're doing, and we're going to accrue draft picks however we need to, prospects however we need to. Um, this is not a team that's looking to seriously contend anymore versus like if you let the free agents walk and you bring back Philip Forsberg and then maybe Mikhail Granlund, uh, you're not really telling the team anything. You're, you're basically saying, well, we're content to run it back. Um, and that's, that's kind of the difference between the two. I do, I do think that it would be maybe about as good for their current interest, uh, between those two moves. Um, in terms of the directional input that it would have versus like, it would be good for them to keep Philip Forsberg for the future. It would be good for them to keep Mikhail Granlund around uh, so that as they're developing these forwards, they have somebody to play with um, rather than just putting them on the wing with Brad Richardson. But I, I just feel like this is the time that the team needs to signal basically a commitment to a vision. And I feel like the move that, I put out there is probably a little bit more of that kind of thing. Uh, speaking of big moves though, let's talk about the biggest name in the NHL offseason at the moment right now, Jack Eichel, the ginger ninja, the redheaded terror, uh, Mr. USA, even though he's not really that because Austin Matthews is the best American player in the world. But besides the point, 
Um, Jack Eichel is getting moved this summer. It's happening. Uh, that is pretty much a guarantee at this point. Uh, Pierre Lebrun came out, I believe it was, let's see, when was this dated at? June 16th, so two days ago, and basically stated, yeah, the, the Sabres are going to move Eichel at the draft. It's just a question of to who. Um, put in the article, basically, the main contenders, the ones that make sense to him at least, which he's he's a big old uh, NHL insider, so he's not going to put these names out here for no reason. Said Philadelphia, which let's go. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, the Rangers, the Kings, the Wild, Anaheim, and Columbus are the main guys who make sense for Eichel to go to. Uh, and again, he's saying that Eichel's going to get moved at the draft, most likely, if not a little bit earlier than that. Um, but let's let's take a look at this in the context of our favorite, uh, you know, Tennessee team. Why? Why on earth would Jack Eichel make sense for this team? Is there any reasoning with which he could make sense for this team? Or is it basically just a flat out, there is no reason that Jack Eichel should come to Nashville or would come to Nashville? Well, I've been writing a lot recently, and it seems like I've been the bearer of bad news uh, a lot of the time um, because I personally don't believe that we should go get Jack Eichel. Um, and it's not because I don't think there's any reason. I think there's a lot of reasons why the Predators should go get Jack Eichel simply because he's Jack Eichel and he's a really freaking good hockey player. I mean, who doesn't want Jack Eichel on their team? I, like, if I mean, he's he's a fantastic player and he's been stuck in an awful situation for his entire career. And, and you know, I don't blame him for wanting out, um, but I don't think that Jack Eichel – I don't, I don't think the solution for Jack Eichel is Nashville. Um, uh, for one, I I mean, as I, I stated it earlier, Heinz's system is offense stifling. Um, so when the guy, I mean, I think Jack Eichel is clearly better than Ryan Johansson and Matt Duchesne and all them, obviously. Um, but, I mean, if he's not scoring at the pace that he probably should be scoring at, then there's going to be some concerns from the fans that, I mean, you brought in a $10 million player and he's not scoring. I mean, it's the same thing, same thing that happened when they signed Johansson and Duchesne, $8 million, and they didn't do anything. Like, I mean, they, they just are underperforming for what they're paid. Um, and the fact that you'd have to trade for Jack Eichel, the, the Sabres asking price is way, way too high for what the Preds need to be focused on right now. Um you know, if if they want to lower it a little bit and it gets to that point where they're just desperate to get rid of a guy that doesn't want to be there, then maybe you could look more into giving up a couple prospects and, uh, you know, a high pick. But I don't think that's the road you want to go down. Um, I mean, they, I mean, they, like, the, the reported ask from teams was, like, Quentin Byfield and... You know, even like Adam Fox's name was thrown around there. Capo Caco, like it, I mean, it was guys that the Predators just simply don't have in their system, outside of maybe Askarov and Tomasino. Even though I don't think Tomasino is on Byfield or Caco. No, no, they're not uh, on that level. Yeah. So I mean, you know, as much as I love the guy, it, it, it would just take that much more to get to just like pry Eichel from Buffalo's hands because you know after the Taylor Hall debacle they're not giving up 
I mean, they're, they're, that deal is, it's not happening without them, quote unquote, robbing the, the, the Predators. I mean, you don't, you're getting Jack Eichel, but at, at what cost at this point? You know, like, it, it's just, it's hard for me where the Preds are right now to see Jack Eichel as good as he is. I mean, he's a superstar. I just, it's just hard for me to see that being the right road to go down. And at this point, I mean, sometimes the best move is not making a move at all. So I think that's, that's where I stand with it. And it's, you know, obviously not a shot at Jack Eichel. And if they can get him for a discount, then I mean, who knows? It's, it's, I just don't see Buffalo lowering their asking price very much. And that's why I hesitate to say that the Predators should be even close to in on him. Yeah. My, my big thing is Buffalo is looking for young, good roster players or a prospect with a number one center franchise player ceiling. In addition to more on top of that, Um, they're looking for those types of dudes. So we'll get to it in a second. We both came up with like potential packages that the Predators could propose. But basically mine, looking at what I wrote, um, and I kind of did this on purpose, I don't think the Predators would be willing to give up what it took. Even even if they were willing to throw out Tomasino, Askarov, Dante Fabro, a bunch of first-round picks, whatever, whatever Buffalo is asking for, I don't think that they would be the number one contender. Um, and I don't even know that they'd be willing to give that up. I think they'd just be willing to give up like a couple of players and some picks, and that would be it. Um, David Poyle seems pretty content with the roster right now. I, I'm sure he'd love to have Jack Eichel on the roster. And this this is where I kind of weigh. Um, I do think it would be worth the effort to try and get Eichel, and if the Predators were capable of getting Eichel, I think it would be worth doing. Um, just because... If you're, if you're looking at this team and how, again, we've talked about on this show already a couple of times, contention window and how that works. Um, if you're talking about how contending windows would align based upon having Eichel on the roster versus not, Eichel, Eichel is not quite in his prime right now, I would say, but he's getting close to that point. He's a very young player. He's had a point per game on an awful team. Um, I mean, we talked about and you mentioned like the Predators have just terrible historical score. The Sabres have been one of the worst teams in the NHL the entire time that Eichel has been there. They're not very good offensively either. Um, and Eichel's biggest year was with like freaking Jeff Skinner. I'd say that Phil Forsberg is probably a little bit better than Jeff Skinner. Um, so there is a potential for Eichel to have that big year, that Paul Correa with the Predators over a point per game year, break the franchise record. I do, I do think that it's a little unfair to even compare Johansson and Duchesne to him because Eichel throughout his career has been in a much worse situation than either of those two players were in. I guess you could say Johansson was in a pretty bad one in Columbus, but like that, it, Eichel is just a totally different level of player. Um, and he'd, he'd be the best player at forward that Nashville has had since Korea, maybe even better than Korea. Um, so that's that's kind of why I'm like, if you can get a guy like this who is under 27, you go and you do it. Um, because then if you do have prospects come up, they're going to benefit from being alongside him. Ellie Tolvanen would probably benefit hugely from playing with Jack Eichel. I mean, freaking uh, Victor Olofsson, who is essentially a worse Ellie Tolvanen, had a pretty solid rookie year in terms of goal scoring beside Eichel. So 
there there are tangible benefits to this. But there are just too many risks involved. Um, and I don't think that Nashville, even if they threw all their weight behind an Eichel trade, would be capable of doing it. Uh, but the the things that give me the greatest concern with Eichel are he wants to have an experimental surgery done. Um, and there's there's no real concrete idea about how that will pan out. There's no injury timeline. You don't know if he's going to come back a different player from that. That changes things a little bit. And then maybe my my other thing that I worry about is Nashville already previous to this year uh, had a locker room culture that was a little bit questionable. Um, now they did a lot to fix it this year and reportedly everybody's very pleased. I feel like that's basically just because the team started winning in the back half of the year. But Jack Eichel, notably not the best locker room influence. I would be pretty fed up if I were in Buffalo too, but there's I, I talk to people who are much more plugged in than me and they're basically like especially with the flyers side of things i wouldn't they're like i don't know that i would want eichel coming into a locker room that's already pretty fragile because i feel like he could just completely wreck it so there's there's reason for pause there this is a hefty ass contract too to be dealing with um i don't know it just doesn't make a ton of sense for the team to be even capable of getting him let alone coming up with the reasoning behind how you can build the team out around him with the current state of the cap. You'd have to sacrifice a lot of draft picks and prospects in order to make this work. And then does he even make the Predators a true Stanley Cup contender? That's that's another question that's worth asking. I don't know that he does. Uh, so let's, let's get into those trade proposals that we kind of concocted here. I'll just throw mine out really quickly and then we can get into yours. As I said, this is a low ball. Um, I... Don't think that the Predators are really interested in him. If they were putting together a package, this would probably be what it would look like. And I don't think the Sabres would even take a second glance at it. But I had them giving up Ellie Tolvanen, their 2021 18th overall pick, the 50th overall pick this year, and Alexander Carrier in exchange for Jack Eichel. I feel like there's absolutely no way that would happen. But I also don't think that the Predators would be willing to offer up any of their big prospects outside of maybe Dante Fabro, who they seem a little bit uh, disenchanted with. Yeah, for me, I think mine was a little bit of the opposite end. It was a pretty high standard. Um, so I said, like, I, I mean, like you said, they're not going to, I don't think they're going to offer any of their big um, prospects. But in the hypothetical scenario that they were, pursuing Eichel with all that they had. Um, I said uh, Askarov, Evangelista, Fabro, the 18th overall pick, and the 2022 first for Eichel, which could be a little bit of an overkill, but, I mean, with Buffalo, I think that's what you're going to have to do. Um, I obviously don't see this happening at all um, for the reasons you mentioned, just because the Preds seem pretty content with their roster right now, and I doubt that they're going to trade any of their high-profile uh, prospects. Um but also, I think that in David Poyle's mind, and even in my mind, to be honest, I don't know if the Preds win this trade. Um, it's just uh, it's just a big risk. Instead of saying, yeah, we robbed him, like you, you can't definitely say that you robbed him when you're giving up a goaltender the caliber of Askarov, even if you know he is a goaltender and we all know how goaltenders are. Um, but yeah, I think this is, a, I think what I put is a, a little bit of an oversell. Um, but I mean, 
that that might be what you need for the teams that are pursuing Eichel heavily. Yeah, like I I don't think you're overselling it at all. If anything, you could make this an even more enticing package by subbing out Evangelista for one of Tomasino or Tolvanen. Um, I I think the main thing here is it's very much based upon what does Buffalo think of Askarov and do they think Uko Pekka Lukanen, which by the way, Hall of Fame name right there. Absolutely. <laughs> Love it. I love it. Always, always go get him in my NHL franchise because I just love hearing the announcers say his name. But uh, uh, it, it, it's entirely dependent upon what they think of Askarov as a prospect. Do they think he's a game-changing, franchise-altering talent? And then what do they think of Uko Pekka Lukanen? Um, and based upon the fact that they took Jack Quinn eighth overall in that draft, ahead of three picks ahead of Askarov, I get the feeling that they probably aren't super high on him, or at the very least, they don't think that he's a legitimate franchise-altering talent. Either that, or they're just insanely high on Jack Quinn, uh, which would like be be kind of in line for Buffalo, I guess, at this point. But I don't know. I don't think anybody in their right mind looks at Jack Quinn and goes, "Yeah, that dude is a future fifty-goal scorer and like franchise winger. He's he could be a pretty good player, but." He was considered a reach even at the time. I don't think anybody would say that he has that kind of pedigree. So if they're, if the Predators were making a package here, I would say you could maybe take out one of those first-round picks and then sub in like Tolvanen or Tomasino instead. And then Buffalo gets two good – like I don't, I don't think Dante Fabro is like a great roster player, but he would be a decent enough roster player who's young and talented and you could project as like, this could be a good number three or number four defenseman on this team, right? Um, a, a replacement for uh, noted god Rasmus Ristolainen. So there's, there's that there. And then let's say you throw Ellie Tolvanen into the mix. This is a dude who is already a power play weapon has gone for stretches where he scored like a first liner. Um, and he he has some work to do at 5v5. He has some questions about his skating um, and whether or not he'll ever be a true top line forward. But the promise is there. You can see the frame that you could build out from if you're Buffalo, uh, particularly if you, you feel like uh, Dylan Cousins is the guy of the future to build the team around. Um, and then entirely dependent upon what they think of Askarov. But I still don't think they'd even take that package over something that like a team like Minnesota or New York could put together. Because, I mean, if you look at the players that New York has, they their talent coming out the years on that roster. They have Philip Heedle could be like a throw-in in that trade. And he's a guy who's already a proven, very good NHL player. Um, Kapokaka, firmer second overall pick, had a much better season this year just didn't get the scoring results, but there's reason to look at him and go, yeah, this is a guy who could be a top-line forward. Uh, Lafreniere, one of the highest-touted draft prospects coming out recently. So I, I think your your trade proposal is much more reasonable than the one that I came up with in terms of if the Predators actually wanted to go get Eichel, but I just, again, don't see them being competitive for him in any sense. Um, and I think you had some comments about whether or not this was even mildly realistic. Yeah, I, I, I just don't. I mean, I don't. I don't think it is just because. Uh, I mean, one, you're. 
you drafted Askarov at 11 and then all of a sudden, like, I mean, that's the highest pick that they've had in years. And then you just kind of give them up for, I mean, it's Jack Eichel, but at the same time, I just don't know if uh, it's realistic in the fact that David Poyle clearly does not want to take risks. He's, he's been signing UFAs to take up roster spots. He's been trying to, I mean, to be honest, I don't really know what he's been doing, but it's just like the way he's building the roster is a lot of, all right, I'm going to pick safe players that could get me this on the upper end, but will get me at least this. And that kind of philosophy just doesn't make me think that he's even willing to discuss trading Askarov, Evangelista, Fabro, the 18th overall pick, and the 2022 first, which was my deal. I, I mean, I think if Buffalo asks for Askarov, David Poyle hangs up the phone and he says, I'm not doing that. Um, and I, I don't think it's not only unrealistic because he's not willing to risk the, the pieces, but I just don't think that the way this direction, the way that the direction this team looks to be going with David Poyle at the helm is shaking up the NHL with a massive trade. Like I said, I think it's kind of just being safe with everything, which for me is absolutely infuriating. Um, it's just kind of, you know, just being mad, just being in the yeah, middle. It's just being mad. It's like, it's like the, the Minnesota wild for years. It's just kind of, going to sign some lower-end free agents and get the offseason over with, maybe draft a couple guys, I don't know. It's just kind of like you're on vacation and you're leaning back and you got your parents asking you questions, and you're just kind of like, yeah, I don't care. We can do whatever. Sure, sure. It's just kind of like, yeah, look, you do this. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, You know, it's just, it's just kind of, you know, you just do whatever is kind of in the middle. You don't really have a true decision. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't think this is realistic at all. Even if, you know, the Preds were in on him. Yeah, my my thing is basically the only way I could see this happening is if David Poyle takes a look at like where he stands and he goes, I'm gonna retire in a year or two. And the team, like right now, we think basically at, on the forecheck, and I don't know if you agree with this, but that the team is gonna hand the keys to his kid. Uh yeah. Brian, they're gonna hand the, they're gonna hand the keys to Brian Poyle. That's like the assumption, the widespread assumption is that the kid's getting the keys, right? But if he, David, knows that that's not the case per se, that Brian might not get the job. Let's say that he's he's on the inside and he knows that because obviously he's gonna know more about that than we do. Um, and he's like, I've got two years left before I'm done. Screw it, I'm gonna go for a cup. Why not? So he says damn the consequences i'm not going to be around much longer and throws everything at buffalo to go get jack eichel because he thinks that if i go get this piece and a couple of players bounce back in the form and we sign you say soros this is a team that can contend at the bare minimum for winning the division and at best if the goalie gets hot and they play better for a stanley cup um that's the only reasoning line of reasoning that I could see justifying going to get Jack Eichel. And it's a very flimsy one at that. Um, and 
pretty much just a hypothetical situation that I concocted. We have no concrete proof of any of that. But uh, and even then, that's up to Buffalo being willing to trade Eichel for whatever the Predators are offering them if they like the players or not. So in, in, in the mood of talking about crazy offseason stuff, I wrote an article uh, uh, yesterday. Yeah, well, I wrote it a little while ago, but it came out yesterday for Broad Street Hockey about why the Flyers should look to offer sheet Elias Pettersson. Um, now I would have just yammered on about, oh, the Predators should take a look at doing this, but, uh, I I felt like it would be more interesting to talk about some of the other restricted free agents who we know that offer sheets don't happen because GMs are cowards. Um, and they're afraid of pissing each other off. That's like the biggest reason why it doesn't happen. Um, but I don't know. This this just got me thinking about what could the Predators do with offer sheets this offseason if they did have the balls to do one uh, to both benefit themselves and crush other people, crush other franchises. Um, I took it in that direction, at least. I think you looked at it straightforward as they should add this player. Um, but we both came up with one guy where if you had to have the Predators offer sheet somebody, who would it be? Um, so Jeff, you want to start off with your pick here? Yeah, so uh, you're right. I did kind of take it uh, straightforward, um, especially considering the team that the player is on right now won't be in the division uh, next year. He won't even they won't even be in the conference. Um, so I, I didn't really view it as like crushing the other the other uh, GM into uh, cap hell. But you know what? Hey, what's it's, that's fun anyway. Uh, but. Yeah, so for me, I chose um, Patrick Laine. Uh I mean, Columbus is awful. Uh, nobody wants to play there. Um, Seth Jones, he's reportedly probably going to be out sooner rather than later. Um, I mean, Columbus, they uh, clearly Kekalainen, he, he gathered picks at the trade deadline this year. I mean, he got a first for Nick Foligno. I don't know how he managed to pull that off, but he did. Um you know, I, I he they they're clearly edging in that rebuild direction as they should be, in my opinion. Um, and some salary cap relief, along with the picks, could be some some help. Um, I mean, we all know what Patrick Line is capable of. Uh, he's he's a ridiculous ridiculous goal scorer. Um, I mean, he has two hundred seventy one points in three hundred fifty one games and. 150 of them are goals, which is ridiculous. Um, to have that many goals in 351 games might seem not a lot, might seem like not a lot, but it is when you look at, I mean, where he's been and he's, he's just been unbelievable. Um, he scored 40 goals. Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah, he's 40 goal scoring. Like, I, I don't know what else you need to hear. Uh, he's, He's just, and he's shown flashes of, of being able to do things on himself, uh, like on on his own. Like, you know, he he's he scored that incredible, incredible goal this year with Columbus, where he just kind of went coast to coast, and just just roofed it. Like it was it was an incredible goal. He deep through like th- four guys or something crazy like that. I mean, it was highlight real stuff. And you know, I think the Predators could really use that and the one thing that would be just mind bogglingly fun, uh, 
on the power play, you have Patrick Laine on one wing, and then you have Ellie Tolvanen on the other. And, or, I mean, or you have them split up and you have two Finnish snipers on two power play units that desperately need goal scoring help. So, I mean, that and you, and if, I mean, barring either one of these guys get picked in the expansion draft, which I don't think they will be, but that's a different conversation. Um, I mean, if you put him on a wing with Matthew Shane, like, what does that get you? I mean, you ought, you'll probably see a spike in Matthew Shane's point scoring, but I mean, uh, a guy that can really bring transition and possession controlled entries and all the stuff that Patrick Laine needs for guys to set him up. Matt Duchesne brings that. I mean, he, it just, it just kind of feels like a, it would be a, a good fit, even though I don't know what the state of the cut with the cap, that it would be the right choice. And obviously GMs are cowards, like you mentioned, so it's not going to happen. But I, I just think that would be a, an extremely fun option for the Preds and it could get people on that, that mode where we're going in a young direction and it might just be a retool, maybe not a full rebuild, but I mean, you could start by offer sheeting Patrick Line and say, we're going to get rid of these older guys, bring in guys like Tomasino and Ferrance and all that. And just, you know, make these guys the foundation of what we want this team to be. Yeah. So that just got my brain like churning quite a bit because I just thought about, the ramifications and possibilities of this. So the first thing I always like to look at, even though offer sheets just don't happen, is the likelihood that you could even get the player if you did offer sheet them. So let's say you offer sheeted, uh, not Eichel, uh, Line A for the top end of the range that basically says Columbus gets a first, a second, and a third back. I think they take it. I think they take the compensation because they're probably not going to extend him. He doesn't seem like the type of dude who would want to stay on a bad team in Ohio. Um, like, I'm sure he has a good relationship with Kekalainen because they're both Finnish boys, and Kekalainen seems to have really good relationships with Finnish players. Uh, but I, I don't think that's reason enough for him to stick around. I think if he got brought to Nashville, he would have a chance to put up some big seasons and play in a market that would love him because even if he doesn't really play defense if he scores goals nobody's going to care here this is not a well-informed enough fan base where they're going to get super mad at him this is not a critical media market either um basically if he just does flashy stuff people will love him uh and i could see them offer sheeting him for like a shade under nine million for a five-year contract and him actually taking that deal and then Columbus letting him walk because or I guess they might match if it were that, but if they if they look at it and they go, well, that's a $9 million player essentially for five years who's probably going to become a malcontent because he's not happy to stay here. And he doesn't really fit what we're trying to do in terms of a rebuild. Then they might just let him walk. And if you really like Patrick Line, I'm not an enormous fan of Patrick Line. Uh, I like two-way players a lot better than guys who just do one thing. But if you really liked him, you could you could offer sheet him for like $10 million. And basically that would put him in the range where you're just adding an additional first-round pick on. And that would pretty much guarantee him coming to Nashville. So that's reasonably realistic if they wanted to do that. And then you're talking about the production that could be seen. 
if Nashville wanted to reload and be a legitimate cup contender, that's kind of a path for that to happen. Because now you've you've hypothetically fixed your power play issues by adding line A. Or at the bare minimum, you've supplemented them, which is one of the biggest common problems this team has dealt with. Line A doesn't need to be too worried about fixing his defense because this is a already above average defensive team with some help on the way um, that has great goaltending. And then they play a defensive system, but John Hines seems to be flexible enough to let guys rove. It, it just, there's, there's a lot of smart stuff behind this on this besides just the surface thing of you go and you get Patrick line who'd be fun as hell. Uh, and I don't know, it, it's a very interesting thought. Mine, I basically did because I'm diabolical and I want to wreck people within the division. Uh, that, was, that was basically the whole thing with the Pedersen offer sheet thought was the Canucks are on the verge of going into cap hell um, and they have to sign both Quinn Hughes and Pedersen this offseason and they're going to have to pay more guys coming up um they're they're in a really bad spot so if somebody offers sheeted Pedersen for like almost nine million or let's say almost 11 million dollars they would not be able to keep him um or if they did they'd have to trade a bunch of assets in order to get rid of bad contracts or lose a bunch of good players in the process so looking at all of that as my mentality I looked at the Dallas Stars and particularly a 21-year-old defenseman by the name of Miro Haskinen, who has been extremely productive in his young career, uh, an excellent puck mover, one of the best skaters in the NHL. He's kind of like Roman Yossi if he was a little bit more of a two-way player and less of an offensive guy. Um, I can't even begin to imagine how fun a top pairing of Yossi and Haskinen would be because the other team would just never touch the puck. Uh, They would just be skating circles around them. But basically what I proposed is Nashville offer sheet Haskin into a five-year, basically $10.9 million uh, value per year deal. It would cost them a pair of first-round picks, a second-round pick, and a third-round pick. So best-case scenario, this puts you in a position where now you have Matias Ekholm's heir apparent, um, and you can afford to trade Ekholm to both offload a little bit of salary, you don't have to worry about extending him anymore, and then also you can get assets in the process. Uh, But then also, the opposite side of this is, if if Dallas chooses to match this, then they're screwed in the long term in their cap situation. I took a look at... They're they're looking okay this year in terms of salary cap. They have around $17 of projected space. But they have a lot of guys who are going to need to get pay raises soon. Denis Garyanov needs to get paid. John Klingberg is only making like $4 million right now. Radulov's making $6 million. He's going to get a raise. Jason Robertson's making like $800,000. And he produced at a second line, borderline, first line level this year. And he's going to be due for a pay raise. There are all these dudes who are going to need money soon. And Dallas is not going to have a lot of money free. There's not going to be a ton coming off the books. So... This is an opportunity where the best case scenario, you get a great player who is kind of maybe getting overpaid a little bit, but there's still a great piece that you could build a rebuild around or a reload around. Um, They'll make your defense more effective and he'll be a good player for all five years of that contract. You're signing him at 21 years old. Um, 
the worst case is that you just completely destroy the divisional rivals cap situation. This won't happen because, again, GMs are afraid of pissing other GMs off. It's like the unwritten rules of baseball, basically, where you don't want to do things that are not in code. But this would be these are the types of moves that the offer sheets should be used for. You should put GMs in a situation where they are forced to make a choice um, that either screws them or doesn't and you get a player out of it. Uh, I think the last time that one of these kinds of plays happened was San Jose. Uh, was it in like 2010-ish where they offer sheeted Nick Yalmerson, um, even though they didn't really want him, and then Chicago matched it but were paying more for him than they would have, and they just swooped in and took Antti Niemi because Chicago couldn't afford to pay him. So... These are the kinds of things that I would like to see around the league, but they're not going to happen. This was just a fun discussion for this show. Um, between the two of these, though, who do you feel like or which plan do you feel like would be the most effective one as we wrap up here? I don't know. I, <laughs> Being uh, you know, a, a diehard Preds fan while also trying to stay objective, uh, I love the idea of making Dallas you know, hurt uh, just because I don't like them. Um, but at the same time, I feel like if you're looking at the benefit of the Preds, I really like the Patrick Lane. I mean, for all the reasons you brought up too, I mean, you have, I mean, you bring in a guy like this fan base, this fan base is not worried about having guys that play defense. This fan base is worried about why our two $8 million centers are not scoring anything and why our goal scoring is really just so low. And I think Patrick Laine could be the solution to a, I guess the temporary solution to a big problem, uh, like a little bit of a, you know, just kind of a painkiller, I guess. Uh, just because, you know, people are going to get infuriated when you can't score goals. And right now the Predators cannot score goals to save their lives. And Patrick Laine could easily change that. So I think if you want to change the mindset of the fans, Patrick Laine could be the perfect, you know, guy to bring in. But at the same time, if you want to get a leg up on your division rival, yeah, why the hell not? Let's offer she Mira Heiskanen. I mean, the dude is an unbelievable defenseman and put up some insane numbers in his rookie year. And, you know, he, he's shown what he can do. I mean, he torched the Preds in the playoffs in 2019. He was so good. Uh, and, he, and he showed why he was so good last year in the entire playoffs when they went on that run. He was arguably their best player. And, you know, I mean, he's a really talented guy. And I think that I think both situations could have their benefits. Um, I think if you're if you're more down on the division rival, I think you go with Heiskanen. But I think if you just are thinking from a Preds perspective, I'd say you go line A. I'm going to go with yours here. I think yours is the better one. Um, now, I think the Haskinen one is the funnier one because <laughs> it would it would just be so <laughs> rude and like I can't even imagine what the Dallas Nashville games would be like if that happened. Those teams would hate each other. Uh, there would be so much fun media stuff to come out of that too. Like I just remember. These weren't even divisional rivals, but they're my two teams. The Flyers, when they offer sheeted Shea Weber to that insane deal uh, <laughs> back in 2012, and then basically the Predators, after being the most common trade partner for the Flyers for 
their beginning history all the way up until 2012, they just stopped trading with them until Paul Holmgren left. That's basically what happened because David Poyle hated his guts after that. Um, so yeah, this, this would be pretty hilarious if they did that to the stars. Um, that, that would be too funny, but I do think that line A in the interest of the team would be much better because genuinely I could see a line of him, Forsberg and, uh, Duchesne putting up actual numbers. Um, I could see line A fixing the power play issues. I could see him being a very good fit for Nashville because it's a laid back environment and he's not getting screamed at by the coach. John Hines seems to very much be a player's coach. Um, so there, there are just a lot of things about the line A thing that suddenly kind of makes sense. Um, and yeah, if, if Nashville went out and did that, I'd be shocked. Uh, but David Poyle has done insane things before. So maybe this is the thing where instead of going and he just shells out a ton of draft picks and futures for Jack Eichel, he screws over the Columbus Blue Jackets. And they're like, well, you know, are we really going to get more for uh, Patrick Laine, who is going to need a new contract uh, in this offseason than a first, second, and a third? Is somebody willing to pay more than that? I don't know. Uh, so. I could see that happening. Um, now, again, jams are cowards, so it probably won't. Uh, that'll that'll wrap up our show for this week. Uh, Jeff, where can people find you, and what are some things that they should be looking for when it comes to your writing, both past and present? All right. So yeah, I I'm pretty much everywhere. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at jjmito4. Um, You'll get a lot out of me from all sports, mainly hockey. Um, for writing stuff, uh, I'm also everywhere. Uh, right at Last Word on Sports, occasionally. Um, I'm pumping stuff out for the hockey writers and uh, just had a new article come out today for on the forecheck, obviously. Uh, right now, I was actually doing a piece on the RFA decisions Um right now for the Preds and what they could do offer sheet wise and what they could do, you know, with guys, even in their own system. Um, but I, I'm also looking at stuff with the expansion draft that's, and even just the regular entry draft. Uh, I've just been kind of looking at all the approaches that the Preds can take this off season and what they can be doing uh, to pick the, pick the road that they need to go down and figure it all out. So yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter and, you know, read some of my stuff. <laughs> All right. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jin and you see, uh, sounds like the Snoop Dogg album. Uh, last part of that, though, spelled like UC Saros's first name. And my work, you can find me at broadstreethockey.com or on theforecheck.com or on this podcast network uh, or Broad Street Hockey's podcast network. I do a little bit of everything. If you look at my Twitter bio, uh, there's a link tree that pretty much takes you to all of the different stuff that I do. So you can go and read that. Uh, recent things that I've put out, the aforementioned Elias Pedersen offer sheet article, which kind of just goes into how the Canucks are screwed. And if a team wanted to be devious, they could get one of the 20 best young players in the NHL. It's probably one of the 10 best young players in the NHL, if not five. Uh, but yeah, just you could go read that. Um in terms of Preds content, I haven't really come out with a ton of stuff lately, I'll be honest. 
but I feel like that's just because there's not a ton to talk about with this team until we start getting a little bit closer to the draft, uh, particularly once the Stanley Cup ends and we start talking more about expansion draft stuff with Seattle. Uh, but I, I have some stuff that's older, particularly, I think it's funny to go back and read the team manifesto that I wrote back when the team was well below 500 with no end in sight for the losing. Um, and then OTF is going to be coming out with player report cards soon. Uh, we've already started that process. I'm pretty sure. So be sure to look out for those. I'll be doing some of those. Um, I'm currently only scheduled for two, but I'll probably pick up a couple more. I think I'm scheduled for five. Yeah. Well, I got a lot on my plate. I just showed up late to the party because I lost the email. And then I, when I got there, everybody had already taken all the players. Which, like, a lot of them are bottom pair defensemen or, like, dudes yeah. who played 10 games that Sean is going to do. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, likes, he likes the depth guys. Which, to be fair, they usually tend to be some of the more interesting interviews and storylines. But, uh, yeah, so be on the lookout for that. And I'll probably come out with some off-season content pretty soon. I've just been very Flyers-focused, mostly because that's an insanely rabid fan base, and they're always looking for things to argue about. So if I give them something worth arguing about, uh, that's that's usually pretty good. And then, oh, I forgot about this. Uh, I wrote something for Broad Street Hockey that's basically called uh, Hunting in the Off-Season Flea Market. Uh, And... Aside from one player on there, Tanner Janot, um, the rest of them are all perfectly good options that the Predators should take a look at going after in the offseason if they just want to make incremental improvements or sign good value deals. I felt like a lot of the guys on there were reasonably smart uh, players to go after. So that'll conclude our show for this week. Hopefully we'll come back next week, barring some unforeseen consequences. I'm pretty sure I will be on the road. Um, I'm going to be up in the East Coast uh, next week while we're likely to record, but that's fine because, honestly, I can just bring my laptop and find a quiet place. Uh, And, yeah, we'll see you next week. Jeff, do you have anything else before we go? He's nodding his head no. I got got nothing, man. I I think I'm good on all my prez ranting for now. I, I liked your nod no as if podcasting is a visual True. medium. True. The the good listeners can definitely see you doing that. Uh, well, that'll wrap it up for this week. Please leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts or I think we're on Spotify now, maybe. Uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast from, leave a nice review if you can. Uh, it's very appreciated. And if you don't want to leave a nice review, at least leave some helpful feedback. That is also always appreciated. Uh, that'll be it. Have a great week, everybody. Go Preds.